Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. Late on the evening of January 7th, 2013, David Bowie received an email from his producer, Tony Visconti. Two hours and 30 minutes to go, it read. David grinned at the screen and fired off a quick response. Now it's two hours and 26 minutes. The old friends were counting down the minutes till the release of David's latest single, Where Are We Now? His first new music in a decade. Since his heart attack on stage at a German festival in 2004, he'd effectively abandoned his role as a public figure. That was the word on the street, at least. And David was happy to keep it that way. His silence stoked rumors that his days as a rock star were permanently behind him. There were no tours, no albums, no songs, no major interviews. For the latter half of the 2000s, David Bowie was retired. Instead, he reverted back to David Jones, a father, husband, and anonymous New Yorker. In just a few hours, that would all change. Bowie was about to make his comeback, though only a few people on the planet knew it. He'd recorded a new album entirely in secret, going to heroic lengths to keep it under wraps. It was like something out of a spy movie. Code names were employed. Non-disclosure agreements ensured that David's skeleton crew kept their mouths shut. Everything was on a need-to-know basis, and consequently, very few people knew a thing. Not even the head of David's label, Sony, was aware of David's plans until just a few weeks before his big announcement. Naturally, the exec was thrilled. A new Bowie album was always cause for celebration. But what about the PR campaign, he asked. Publicity pushes require months of prep work and strategizing. There is no PR campaign, David replied. We're just going to drop it on the 8th of January. That's it. The countdown had commenced. Five, four, three, two, one. Where Are We Now was quietly uploaded to iTunes just after midnight in New York. 
A video for the melancholic piano ballad was added to YouTube with no fanfare. The only notice was a small message on David's mostly dormant website. It announced both the song and an upcoming album called The Next Day, due out two months later in March. David and Tony had their eyes glued to their computers. For a few minutes, nothing happened. Then the avalanche began. Message boards melted down. Twitter went into overdrive. Blogs blew up. TV news programs treated the event like a musical second coming. The shock was universal. There'd been nothing from David Bowie for years, and then, boom. Like the bolt of lightning that had once graced his face, he was back. Not only was he back, he had an entire album. The announcement, the song, the art, the video, all without a single leak. Not even a hint to the world at large. Remember, this was almost a full year before Beyonce's surprise album drop. No one had seen anything like this. It was like magic, as if he'd conjured everything out of thin air instantaneously. There's no other way to say it. David went viral. On one hand, it was a personal first. On the other, he'd been perfecting the art of virality for nearly 50 years. Just look at his album covers, TV appearances, videos, magazine interviews, and fashion statements. Now, by harnessing the infrastructure of the internet that he'd been so quick to champion, David had crafted the perfect moment for the era. The fame David had sung about in 1975 had drastically altered by 2013, mutated and magnified exponentially through camera phones, social media, and the 24-7 digital news cycle. Celebrities were scrutinized like never before and stripped of every ounce of privacy. The easiest defense was to embrace it and share every detail of daily minutia. The thought of hiding something huge like an album drop from fans, not to mention getting away with it, was unfathomable. In David's early days, he'd been told to act like a star, even though at the time he was just a nobody. Now, actual stars were going out of their way to broadcast their own normality, making themselves relatable and accessible, allowing people to see themselves in them. Where's the fun in that? The illusion was gone. It was antithetical to David's whole M.O. I always had a repulsive need to be something more than human, he once said. I felt very puny as a human. I thought, the hell with that. I want to be superhuman. The surprise release of Where Are We Now was both an act of rebellion and a declaration that he was still superhuman. Stars were meant to project an aura of otherness that transcended the everyday. In spite of this intrusive new world, David's mystique remained intact. Plus, it was fun. How often does a global headline make you smile? To top it off, it was David's birthday. He was 66 years old. Three years later, he'd release more music on his birthday. This time, it would be his last. Hello and welcome to Off the Record, the show that goes beyond the songs and into the hearts and minds of rock's greatest legends. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. We've come to the end of our season on the life, or rather lives, of David Bowie. Today's episode starts and ends with a birthday, a former pagan ritual that has evolved over millennia into an annual celebration of life. 
This seemed like an appropriate finale. We begin in 2013, when David re-entered public life after a lengthy absence with Where Are We Now, his first new song in a decade. And we'll end with Black Star, his final album. Released on his 69th birthday in January of 2016, it's a record that many believe was his parting gift as he faced down the illness that would claim his body two days later. Intentional or not, it's a fitting goodbye, one that highlights his creative daring and his fearless spirit. Ziggy Stardust, The Thin White Duke, Major Tom, The Cracked Actor, Aladdin Sane. David Bowie had many guises over the years, but for much of the late 2000s and early 2010s, he was mostly known as a ghost. He was a fleeting apparition on the sidewalks of Manhattan, his home for the majority of his adult life. Bowie spottings usually took a moment to register because he looked so aggressively normal. Though common sense would suggest otherwise, on some level, people expected him to stroll the Soho streets dressed in a silver suit, orange hair, and glam glitter. Instead, he was a middle-aged man in a tatty gray hoodie, skinny jeans, and work boots. More often than not, he was doing mundane things, like grocery shopping at the corner store, or struggling to hail a cab, or sweating it out at a local gym. He was so successful at being low-key that he mostly managed to evade the dreaded paparazzi. On the rare occasions when he was snapped, he had a tendency to slip the photographer the finger. A true New Yorker. He'd stopped speaking to the press, and for a time stopped contacting his friends, including Tony Visconti. Prior to his heart attack on 2004's reality tour, they planned to record not one but three new albums, including an electronica side project, sort of a techno tin machine. But then the subject was dropped. He gave up his share of the studio they rented. He just wasn't interested in writing music anymore. He told one friend that he didn't have anything to say. I just need some downtime, he insisted. He was fed up with the music industry and no longer wished to participate. When a plaque was erected in London to honor the site where the Ziggy Stardust cover was shot, David was nowhere to be found. He turned down repeated requests to represent Queen and country at the 2012 Olympics in London, where he was asked to perform Heroes. Even the blog on his personal website went without update for years. While living in Berlin decades earlier, David had told a friend, I became a rock star. It's what I do. But it's not my whole life. Clearly, he retained the sentiment in the new millennium. Many would cite his heart attack as the reason for his public retreat. Rumors circulated that David was dreadfully ill, and news outlets had their obits ready to roll. The Flaming Lips even released a song in 2011 called Is David Bowie Dying? David's friends denied it, claiming that he was planning to step back even before his health scare. In the midst of the reality tour, David told pianist Mike Garson, After this, I'm going to just be a father and live a normal life. Now that David was happily married to wife Amon and raising young daughter Lexi, the cons of fame finally outweighed the pros the scale been steadily tipping for years. In the beginning, fame was a means to an end, a way to get the resources to create as he saw fit. Simply put, fame was freedom. These days, it was oppressive. 
Aside from scoring prime concert tickets or a good table at a restaurant, fame was, to use David's words, a pain in the ass. So he opted out. In a sense, his heart attack, relatively minor as far as cardiac matters go, was like Bob Dylan's mythical motorcycle crash in 1966, after which he was barely seen in public for a year and a half. The severity of the accident is debatable, but it had given the 60s poet laureate an excuse to stop, rest, and reassess, and raise his family in the serenity of the Catskill Mountains. David followed Dylan's lead, purchasing a 62-acre estate near the upstate town of Woodstock. He'd been captivated by what he called the spirituality of the region while recording Heathen in 2001. I love mountains, he once said. I'm a Capricorn. I was born to be gallivanting on a peak somewhere. When I got up there, I flipped at how beautiful it is. There's a barrenness and a sturdiness in the rugged terrain that draws me. Most of his time was spent in his New York apartment building, a former chocolate factory on Lafayette Street in downtown Manhattan. His 5,300-square-foot home was packed with books, most purchased down the street from McNally Jackson, his favorite bookshop. It was history stuff, mainly, the favorite of middle-aged men everywhere. David devoured everything he could find on the topic, often finishing a book a day. When he wasn't reading, he was painting or making charcoal sketches, drawing inspiration from the mini-museum of modern art that filled his living room. He wasn't precious about it. He'd fallen out of love with one piece, a large metal sculpture, and he indulged his daughter's childlike whims to beat it with a hammer. He doted on his daughter, taking her for walks and proudly attending her school functions. But he also liked his own company. I've never actually been bored, he once said. Looking out a window and watching people is quite enough to keep me occupied for half an hour. His quiet existence left him fulfilled in a way that rock stardom never had. David's more of a homebody than I am, Iman admitted at the time. At least I go to parties once in a while. David's long nights were clearly over. Once, he called the front desk of his apartment complex to complain that his neighbor was blasting music too loud. Granted, the neighbor in question was Courtney Love, but it was 9 a.m. and she was listening to Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, and a volume she claims was quite respectful. Relations with other neighbors were warmer. Most remembered David as very polite and a pure gentleman. One day, he got stuck in the building's elevator. A teenage boy who lived down the hall tried to raise his spirits by singing, Here am I sitting in a tin can, far above the world, down the elevator shaft. David saw the humor and perked up. When he did leave the house, it was often at dawn. He cherished his early morning strolls, relishing what he once called the city's magical transfer of power from the architectural to the human. Sometimes he'd get a hearty, yo, Bowie, from a local, but more often than not, he was left alone. He frequented the dusty record shops in Greenwich Village in search of rare vinyl. Fans thumbing through the Bowie section were sometimes stunned to spot the man himself across the aisle. Just another crate diver. He was known to get prosciutto di parma sandwiches and a bomboloni at a neighborhood Italian grocery store. When he wasn't feeling that, he got a chicken sandwich with watercress and tomatoes from Olives on Prince Street. 
The smell of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies sent his sweet tooth into overdrive, and he usually grabbed one of those, too. He was a regular at Cafe Reggio, an ancient coffee bar where he could be seen sipping a cappuccino outside and writing in his ever-present notebook. Just up the street was Washington Square Park, David's favorite place in the city, a haven for generations of self-proclaimed freaks. At one time, you could have heard Woody Guthrie sing there, or Allen Ginsberg read poetry. Just a few blocks away was Electric Lady Studios, where he'd cut Fame, his first American number one, all those years before. The song had been a meditation on the shallowness of show business notoriety. These days, he was happy to leave it all behind. His appreciation for art of all kinds had never wavered. I love seeing new theater, he told one reporter who managed to snag a brief quote. I love seeing new bands, art shows, everything. I get everywhere. Very quietly, he added, and never above 14th Street, New York's official demarcation point between the Bohemian and the establishment. He caught art house films at the Angelica Theater, sometimes sneaking into multiple movies if he felt like it. It's so easy, he'd marvel. His normcore attire and newly gray hair eliminated the need for any type of disguise. But to be extra cautious, he sometimes carried around a Greek-language newspaper to convince passers-by that he was just a Greek tourist who happened to look an awful lot like David Bowie. It worked like a charm. A friend of his, who, it should be noted, was not famous, once gushed at length about an art exhibit he'd recently seen. The friend urged David to go see it before stopping himself. Oh, you can never go there. There's too many people. David gave a sly smile and said, Oh, you'd be surprised the places I'm able to go. He was never reclusive, a fact that spared him the sad fate of people like Greta Garbo or J.D. Salinger, whose passion for privacy had the unfortunate effect of drawing even more attention to themselves. Instead, David hid in plain sight. He attended charity galas and fashion events with Iman, cutting a dapper but silent figure as they walked the red carpet arm in arm. In 2009, he attended the premiere for Moon, a feature film directed by his son, Zoe, now going by the more conventional name, Duncan Jones. David also gave a handful of performances, all one-offs where he sang just two or three numbers. The first onstage endeavor following his heart attack was at the Fashion Rocks event in September of 2005. For reasons known only to himself, he came dressed in a bandaged arm and a black eye. He seemed uncharacteristically nervous as he sang Life on Mars with just piano accompaniment. Perhaps he was gun-shy after the dramatic end of his last show, where he wound up in the hospital. He chilled out later in the evening when he performed two songs with one of his favorite new bands, Arcade Fire. He must have enjoyed himself, because a week later he climbed on stage at their Central Park gig to help do a two-song encore. Then, in May of 2006, David paid tribute to Pink Floyd founder Sid Barrett by joining the band's guitarist David Gilmour on stage in London for two songs. In addition to being a formative musical influence, Sid's abandonment of fame in favor of an elusive suburban existence surely must have resonated with David. Six months later, on November 9th, 2006, he did a three-song set at the Keep a Child Alive benefit at New York's Hammerstein Ballroom. He played Wild as the Wind, Fantastic Voyage, 
and also changes as a duet with Alicia Keys. There was brief talk of a proper comeback show at a New York festival he was curating in 2007, but it ultimately came to nothing. I'm not thinking of touring, he said in a 2010 New York Times profile of Amon. I'm comfortable. He never would tour again. David also kept busy with his acting, playing a series of offbeat roles in the late 2000s. He took the part of the iconoclastic inventor Nikola Tesla in 2006's The Prestige, but only after director Christopher Nolan quite literally begged him to do it. He was more willing to lend his services to a small-budget indie film called August. Like most everything else he did these days, it was a passion project. He also voiced a character for SpongeBob SquarePants, Lexi's favorite cartoon, but his most notorious role in this period was for Ricky Gervais. David had become friends with the comedian after watching Gervais' BBC sitcom, The Office. He loved it so much that he sent Ricky his version of a fan email. I watched. I laughed. What do I do now? DB. Ricky was a Bowie superfan and had fortuitously just come home from purchasing a fresh CD copy of Aladdin Sane. It was kismet. As their relationship solidified, Ricky plucked up the courage to ask David to be in his new series, Extras. Perverting his hero worship, he cast David as himself, but an especially mean version. He meets Ricky's character, a hapless D-list actor, and is inspired to write a song on the spot called Stupid Little Fat Man. Ricky sent David the suitably cruel lyrics he was to sing and asked him to put his own tune to it. Something retro, came Ricky's request, like a life on Mars. Oh, sure, David replied sarcastically. I'll just whip up a quick life on Mars for you, huh? Ricky appreciated the absurdity of the suggestion, and they both burst into laughter. But David complied, and the song is surprisingly catchy. The scene is easily the funniest single moment in David's career, as he leads a crowded pub through choruses of little fat man with a pug-nosed face, while Ricky's character looks on, mortified. He reprised the song on stage in May of 2007, when David introduced Ricky at Madison Square Garden for his American stand-up debut. This would be, technically, David Bowie's last ever live performance. Many fans conveniently forget this. Instead, they prefer to remember his duet with Alicia Keys on Changes, David's unofficial theme tune, as his concert swan song. Dramatic, yes. Profound, certainly. But there's a certain degree of poetry in David, clad in an immaculate tux, standing in the spotlight at somebody else's show, singing an a cappella song about a chubby little loser. It's a much more fun curtain call. Though he'd abandoned his own musical ventures, David provided the odd backing vocal cameo for a number of artists. He passed on a song by Coldplay, bluntly telling Chris Martin that he didn't think it was any good, but he sang on tracks by the likes of Scarlett Johansson and the Danish alt-rock group Kashmir. He particularly admired the Brooklyn band TV on the Radio and sang harmonies on their 2006 song Province. In the studio, he dispensed precious words of wisdom to the younger musicians. Stay strange, he advised, and don't bend. To his closest friends, David seemed content to live in rock and roll exile. Then, in the fall of 2010, producer Tony Visconti got the call. 
How would you like to make some demos? David asked. Tony did his best to hide his shock. He made it sound so casual. But David's revelation was in the same league as the Beatles deciding to get back together. It was no use trying to determine why or what had changed. Obviously, David finally felt he had something to say. Like early sessions for Lowe in 1976, David wasn't sure if these new songs would ever see the light of day. To keep the pressure off, he decided to keep the recording secret, allowing him creative freedom without speculation from fans and the media, or from meddling record label executives. He invited guitarist Jerry Leonard to the sessions with an email. The subject line read Stum, an old Yiddish word meaning stay quiet. Keep it to yourself, David urged. Don't tell a soul. Though he undoubtedly trusted his friends, David sent out non-disclosure agreements just to be on the safe side. Within days, David, Tony, Jerry, and drummer Sterling Campbell were in a tiny 8x8 dungeon of a rehearsal room in New York's East Village. Quarters were cramped, and the four men found themselves gasping for air as they sketched out David's songs from a little four-track recorder he carried around. They met there every day for a week, tweaking chord structures as David sang wordless melodies on top. He prefaced each session by saying that it was all experimental and might not go anywhere. Let's just get together and make some music, he'd say. At the end of the week, David took the tapes in his backpack and disappeared for four months. Typical. By April of 2011, he was ready to work again, though still under the cloak of top secrecy. His commitment to privacy was tested before they'd even recorded a note. Owners of the studios he'd booked couldn't keep their mouths shut for more than a day before leaking the news to the press. David immediately canceled. Instead, they switched the sessions to the Magic Shop, a studio conveniently located just steps from David's Soho apartment behind unmarked steel doors. The studio's presence on the busy city street was much like David's own. If you weren't looking, you didn't know it was there. Visconti visited the magic shop prior to the booking to stress the importance of secrecy for his anonymous VIP client. Even the studio's owner wasn't aware who the sessions were for until David walked in on May 2, 2011 to begin recording. The studio's interns were always sent home for the day whenever David held a session, and the in-house staff was reduced to just two. Everyone involved was required to sign an NDA, from the musicians and engineers, all the way to the guy who brought David's double macchiato coffee order from La Colombe down the street. Though strict about his privacy, they had a sense of humor about it all. Bowie became known as The Secret, as in, has the secret come in today? At the end of each session, David would snatch the sheet music off of every music stand with a comedic flourish before dramatically locking them away in his briefcase as if they were government files or nuclear reactor codes. Sessions continued sporadically for the next two years. For comparison, Lowe had come together in around two months. Never before had one of his albums been so drawn out. Gone were the round-the-clock recording sessions that had characterized young Americans and station-to-station. Instead, they worked very humane hours, in by 10 a.m. and home in time for David to have dinner with his family. Given the long gestation period, one would think that David's cover would have been blown at some point. There were a few close calls, like the time the Canadian band Metric arrived at the magic shop unannounced, 
and the studio owner had to physically block the door and tell them to come back later. Another time, guitarist Earl Slick was outside the studio having a cigarette when he noticed the cameraman's tripod across the street. Everyone knew that Earl was one of David's go-to guys, and a shot of him outside of a studio down the street from David's apartment was sure to raise some alarms. He stubbed out the butt on the sidewalk and beat a hasty retreat inside. David was able to keep things quiet mostly because his team was so small. Back in the high-flying main man days of the early 70s, his entourage had been enormous, with dozens of people looking after him. And that had ended in chaos and lawsuits. These days, he managed himself with the help of just two people, a business lawyer named Bill Zizblatt and his fiercely devoted PA, Coco Schwab. His label deal stipulated that he didn't have an A&R rep supervising his work, a move that's highly unique in the music world. As a result, no one at Sony knew a thing about the 30-odd tracks he'd amassed. No one anywhere knew a thing. During breaks in the sessions, Visconti would walk the streets of New York listening to rough edits of their new songs in his headphones. On his strolls, he'd pass people in Bowie t-shirts, a fairly ubiquitous sight in downtown New York. He couldn't help but smile. Boy, he thought to himself, if you only knew what I was listening to. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. 
Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. David Bowie's new song, Where Are We Now?, and its accompanying video, were released in the early morning of January 8th, 2013, his 66th birthday. A handful of Bowie-filed journalists were primed that something interesting would be landing in their inbox in the wee small hours. But other than that, there was nothing in the way of promotion or publicity. From both an artistic and a practical standpoint, he didn't need it. The headlines snowballed instantly. The single became the top iTunes download by the end of the day and would shortly hit number six on the UK charts, his biggest hit in his home country since Absolute Beginners in 1986. David joked to his friend Bono that, for once, he wasn't outshone by his birthday twin, Elvis Presley. The message on his website referenced his time away. David's the kind of artist who writes and performs what he wants, when he wants, it read, when he has something to say as opposed to something to sell. Throwing shadows and avoiding the industry treadmill is very David Bowie. On the surface, Where Are We Now is a wistful remembrance of his time in West Berlin, a city that, both technically and spiritually, no longer exists. The passage of time is illustrated by the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, evoking a vivid before and after. David affects a weary croon, frail with age, to name-check his old haunts. In the song, he wanders his former home, his one-time clinic and sanctuary, and he finds that it no longer resembles the place he'd loved in the prime of his life. Had to get the train from Potsdamer Platz, he sings. You never knew that I could do that. Indeed, this was never something he could have done in the 70s. A busy transit hub prior to World War II, Potsdamer Platz station stood abandoned during Bowie's Berlin era, caught in the death strip between east and west that lay just outside of Hansa Studios, where Bowie was hard at work on Low and Heroes. The station reopened after the wall came down, marking just one of the many ways that Berlin had changed for the better. But the transformation gave Bowie a twinge of melancholy as he mourned a past that was undoubtedly troubled, but still his own. On Where Are We Now?, David is a man in the twilight of his life, singing of his lost youth and the ghosts that he sees at every turn. Memories come flooding back. Nights at the Jungle, a favored nightclub where he would dance with Iggy Pop, and trips to the glamorous Cadove department store. Bike rides to the Dybrooka Museum, or breaking new musical ground at Hansa Studios. Cherished moments for him that happen to be rock and roll myths to the rest of us. 
It was an irreplaceable, unmissable experience, David once recalled of his years in Berlin, and probably the happiest time in my life up to that point. The song is jarring for its nakedly nostalgic look at David's own personal past. He was never known for being overly sentimental or overly revealing. The words are almost as much of a surprise as the out of the blue release. Newly 66 years old, he could be forgiven for being a little maudlin. In a sense, it was expected. But since when did David Bowie do anything that was expected of him? Perhaps doing the predictable, the type of song that's appropriate for a man his age, is the most unexpected thing of all. The music video suggests it might be a tease. Directed by Tony Ausler, it features images of Bowie's Berlin stomping grounds, including his former apartment in Schoenenberg. Ausler's wife was cast in the clip due to a resemblance to Coco Schwab, David's closest confidant in the 70s. Their faces are projected onto a pair of conjoined, misshapen dummies, electronic effigies. Behind them, footage of Bowie's past flashes across a projection screen. The loft where they sit is littered with junk, like a family basement or a crowded attic. It's the tritus of a life lived to the fullest. The real Bowie appears at the end of the video, standing off to the side, watching this puppet theater version of his memories before him. Juxtaposed with the flesh and blood Bowie, the dummies seem hopelessly hokey. It's performative nostalgia, a conceptual performance piece acted out for our pleasure. Or is it? In the video, the real David wears a t-shirt that reads Song of Norway, a reminder of a very personal memory, one known by only a few. It was 1969. David was dating his first love, a dancer named Hermione Farthingale. They lived together and sang together. He was the happiest he'd ever been. Then Hermione left home to go abroad and film a small role in a movie called The Song of Norway. She fell in love with someone else on the set, and she ended her relationship with David. It was a formative experience in his young life, one that, by his own admission, messed him up for years to come. Song of Norway is a summation of his earliest and deepest heartbreak and genuine personal grief. Seen alongside the images of Berlin, his very public past, David seems to be sending a message with the shirt. You may think you know all about me, but you'll never know how I felt, and you will never know me. David never explained the video or the song. He did no interviews for the release of Where Are We Now or his new album, The Next Day, which was released to great acclaim in March of 2013, giving him his first UK number one album in 20 years. One critic described it as the greatest comeback album in rock and roll history, and there are many who agree. But David maintained his silence in the press for the rest of his life. The closest he ever came was a request from novelist Rick Moody, whose books David admired. Moody asked for a list of words that hinted at the themes of the album. David responded with a list of 42, three for each song. The ones for Where Are We Now consist of interface, flitting, and mauer, the German word for wall. 
As is so often the case with David's art, the interpretation is up to you. Aside from that, David turned down all requests for interviews. Instead, Tony Visconti handled the press as best he could. He was emphatic about David's strong health, a frequent topic of tabloid gossip since his heart attack. He also went to great lengths to stress that the downbeat, slightly mournful lead single wasn't indicative of the rest of the album. Many of the songs on the next day are up-tempo tracks, beefed up by Earl Slick and Jerry Leonard's crunchy lead guitar lines. But the mood of the album is indeed dark. Valentine's Day delivers a sobering message about gun control by referencing a 2008 school shooting. I'd Rather Be High ventures inside the mind of a 17-year-old soldier fighting in the desert. The title track alludes to religious tormentors and the hypocrisy of the church. And the album's closer, Heat, was so bleak that Visconti requested an explanation. It's not about me, David insisted, but the song The Stars Are Out Tonight certainly contained the kernel of David's personal experience with fame. In the song, he sings, The stars are never sleeping, dead ones and the living. For David, there's no escape from the phenomenon that he once likened to a very luxuriant mental hospital. The only time you're let out, he said, is when you have to earn money for just about everyone but yourself. The clever video for the stars are out tonight subverts the notion of celebrity by depicting David and co-star Tilda Swindon as ordinary folks who are hounded by famous people. For all the heavy themes, the next day is remembered as the record where David Bowie faced his reputation. Nowhere is this more obvious than the art that accompanied the album. It was the work of Jonathan Barnbrook, who'd previously designed the artwork for Heathen and Reality. The single art for Where Are We Now took a shot of David performing in 1974 and rotated it 180 degrees, literally turning his legacy on its head. The album went even further, obscuring the iconic cover of Heroes with a white square in the middle on which the new title was written in simple black lettering. It ingeniously played with the expectation of David's history, which was always looming in the background, no matter what he did. Around the same time, David's past was put on display in a much more literal way. Curators at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London had planned on doing an exhibition of artifacts that had belonged to Elvis Presley. When the king's estate pulled out, the organizers moved on to Elvis's birthday twin. Not only was David interested, but he'd done most of their work for them. Something of a pack rat by nature, he'd saved everything. Costumes, props, sketches, all lovingly preserved in boxes and acid-free tissue paper. He'd hired an archivist to tend to his massive memorabilia collection, totaling some 75,000 items from throughout his career with new pieces being purchased all the time from auction houses and private sellers. David had cataloged his life. Perhaps he was hyper-aware of his own iconography. Or he was just more sentimental than most people gave him credit for. Though he distanced himself from the exhibit publicly, David, one of the most image-conscious musicians of his generation, took an active interest in how his life was being presented. His background in the visual arts gave him an innate understanding of curation. He appreciated their non-linear approach to storytelling, 
Rather than going chronologically, they organized the objects thematically, encapsulating the cities, people, and artists that had shaped David's work. Tony Visconti created a unique Bowie megamix from the master tapes of more than 60 songs to serve as a soundtrack as visitors floated through David's world. The only thing David refused to lend was his cream-colored saxophone, the one he wielded during his very first time on stage with the Conrads at a PTA fair in 1962. It was just too precious to leave his care. The V&A curators had low expectations for the exhibit they called David Bowie Is, but it surpassed their wildest hopes when it opened in March of 2013, becoming the fastest-selling show in the museum's history. People were curious to see what the fiercely guarded Bowie had in his closet. After years without communicating with fans, David was eager to share. David Bowie Is eventually traveled to a total of 12 museums around the world attracting some two million visitors. One of them was David himself. He took Amon and Lexi soon after it opened in London, early one morning before the crowds. The experience was powerful. It was like he was dying, and his life was flashing before his eyes. Vintage TVs, artfully arranged on the gallery floor, flickered with images of his younger self performing. There were the costumes, of course, Curators cherry-picked 60 out of the several hundred available, displaying creations by Alexander McQueen, Vivian Westwood, and Kansai Yamamoto. But that was just the start. They had the EMS briefcase synthesizer that Brian Eno had used on the Berlin Trilogy. He'd given it to Bowie in 1999 with a note. Look after it. Patch it up in strange ways. It's surprising that it can still make noises that nothing else can make. His beloved oblique strategies cards were also thrown in for good measure. There were other gifts from famous friends. A doodle from John Lennon, sketched while in the studio recording Fame, inscribed, For Video Dave with Love. A Western Union telefax from Elvis, wishing him luck on his 1976 tour. Attendees could trace David's unshakable ambition from hand-drawn tour posters for early bands like the Conrads and the Delta Lemons to elaborate designs for the theatrical rock extravaganzas of the 70s. Then there was the assorted grab bag of ephemera, keys to his Berlin apartment, the velvet underground test pressing that had sent his musical mind into overdrive back in 1966, the Coke spoon that had helped him through the long Diamond Dogs tour a tissue blotted with David's Ziggy-era lipstick, displayed like a holy relic. A letter from 1965, formally confirming his new stage name, David Bowie. The contents of his existence were spread before him, arranged for public consumption. His life had become art. The reflection continued in 2014 with a new musical retrospective, It was the first to cover his entire half-century career, from David Jones to David Bowie. The triple-disc set featured three separate covers, each of David at different periods in his life staring into a mirror. Though taken years apart, they're eerily similar, enough to make one wonder if he'd been planning this for decades. The first is his Ziggy Stardust incarnation, flame-haired and freakishly pale, almost translucent. The next is the Thin White Duke, dapper as ever in a suit and fedora. And finally, the current Bowie, 
a handsome if nondescript man in late middle age. Shot from behind, his face is almost completely out of frame, as if a man in retreat. All three covers bear the title, Nothing Has Changed. Of course, the images tell a different story. Comparing as many selves, they could all be totally different people. The only giveaway are his mismatched eyes, a permanent reminder of the teenage tussle he'd had with his best friend all those years ago. Before there was ever a David Bowie, there were those eyes, destined to become his trademark feature. The duality was striking, one steely blue and strong, constantly scanning the horizon for what's to come, the other black and moody, damaged, looking inward at the equally dark places in his soul. The two perspectives formed a singular creative vision, which led him to fame and fortune. Over the years, the face that had stared back at him in the mirror had changed radically, through makeup, hair, clothes, and just the ravages of time. But those eyes remained constant. The title and art for Nothing Has Changed was a challenge to all who labeled David an attention-seeking changeling, or, even worse, a musical chameleon. After all, a chameleon is a creature who changes to fit in with its surroundings. David never made any effort to fit in anywhere. With its provocative name, Nothing Has Changed dared listeners to look closer and find the common thread in his wildly diverse work. The tracks went in reverse order, from his newest song all the way back to 1964's Liza Jane, the first recording he ever released. In a sense, it was full circle. The new song he recorded for the compilation bears the same jazz influences he soaked up in the early 60s. With the unwieldy name Sue, or In the Season of Crime, the song was recorded with jazz composer Maria Schneider. David had seen her perform with her big band at Birdland, Manhattan's legendary jazz haunt. Together, they worked on an arrangement for his new song, with its lyrics inspired by a 17th century John Ford play called Tis a Pity She's a Whore. As they bonded over their shared love of players like Gil Evans and Stan Kenton, Maria recommended David check out the quartet led by the sax player in her orchestra, Donnie McCaslin. The group had a regular gig at 55 Bar, a Greenwich Village hole in the wall. David dropped by to catch their set in June of 2014. Entering the dank downstairs bar, he was transported back to the Soho clubs he frequented with his half-brother Terry as a teen. It was like a homecoming. The wild howl of McCaslin's sax reminded him of his passion for John Coltrane and Jerry Mulligan. As a student at Bromley Tech, a guidance counselor had asked David what he wanted to be when he grew up. David had responded without hesitation, I want to be a sax player in a modern jazz quartet. Somewhere along the way, his goal had been derailed by rock and roll. But McCaslin and his band, these guys had it. McCaslin, meanwhile, was keenly aware that a living legend was sitting just steps away in the tiny bar watching him play. No pressure. He channeled his nervous energy into an unusually intense performance, and it didn't go unnoticed. David approached him afterwards and said, with genuine admiration, Wow, that was really loud. He stayed in touch with McCaslin after the recording session for Sue, 
emailing him new demos and song fragments to go over with his band. Amusingly, McCaslin was unfamiliar with the majority of David's work. His only real frame of reference was Let's Dance, and that was simply due to its ubiquity back in the 80s. He offered to do a deep dive into Bowie's extensive back catalog, but David talked him out of it. That's old stuff, he said. I'm into different things now. Plans were set in place to record a new album with Donnie McCaslin's group. A day before sessions were due to begin in January of 2015, David called Tony Visconti to a meeting. Uh-oh, thought Tony. This sounds ominous. He wondered if he was about to get fired. David greeted his old friend before saying, I have something to show you. Then he removed his wool cap. He was completely bald, and his eyebrows were gone. I have cancer, he told Tony. He'd just come from a chemotherapy session. Tony got teary. David told him not to cry. And then the matter was dropped. Instead, they discussed the recording planned for the next day. David had more that he wanted to say. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. 
This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was late one night in 1995. David Bowie was in the midst of his outside tour, crisscrossing the United States by bus. Most of the entourage was asleep, but David was wide awake. He sat down with pianist Mike Garson. A veteran of the Ziggy Stardust shows, Garson had been with David longer than any other musician. He was a valued collaborator and trusted friend. They started talking, one of those expansive conversations that you have at 1 a.m., David had something he wanted to get off his chest. Years earlier, he'd seen a psychic, and the reading had been disturbing. They'd told him that David would die at age 69 or 70. Though the meeting had occurred nearly a decade prior, he'd never forgotten it, and it nagged at him. David was diagnosed with liver cancer in mid-2014, when he was 67. Though he certainly fought with strength and bravery the question of fate must have weighed heavily on his mind. The chemo treatments were grueling. Sometimes he would call Tony Visconti, ostensibly to talk shop, but also for some reassurance. Don't worry, the producer insisted. You're going to live. One hopes, David would reply in a voice barely above a whisper. Don't get too excited about that. Few outside David's innermost circle knew about his illness. Like the sessions for the next day, the information was shared on a need-to-know basis. Consequently, few did. He threw himself into his work. It was the best balm to take his mind off the painful treatment and the psychic's unsettling prediction. In the early months of 2015, he settled in at the Magic Shop Studios along with Visconti and Donnie McCaslin's quartet. They drew inspiration from D'Angelo's long-awaited comeback album, Black Messiah, which had just been released a few months earlier. A little later, they dove into Kendrick Lamar's rap opus to Pimp a Butterfly. The respective R&B and hip-hop leanings of both were shot through with traces of jazz. It was a technique David would try to emulate on his new record. Avoid rock and roll became the familiar refrain of the sessions, as David turned his ear to other influences, like experimental rap trio Death Grips and electronic duo Boards of Canada. The recordings were split into roughly a week a month throughout the spring of 2015. The free-flowing creative spirit was established on the first day when David told the group, Just go have fun. Anything you're hearing, I want you to go for it. Despite his health, his energy was high. David's eyes sparkled, and he belted it on the mic like he was on stage at Wembley. His assistant's dog, Muffin, became something of a mascot for the sessions and always brought a smile to David's face. He and the band would eat sandwiches for lunch in the studio lounge, and they celebrated his birthday together when Amon stopped by with sushi. He was 68 years old, 
the unnerving countdown in David's head ticked on. Mortality had been a recurring theme in his music in recent years, but the words for this work in progress understandably cut a little deeper. The tone was obvious enough for Tony Visconti to approach David early on in the sessions. You canny bastard, he said. You're writing a farewell album, aren't you? David didn't confirm or deny. He just laughed. By mid-year, his prognosis looked good. He was responding well to the chemotherapy, and his cancer went into remission. David was cautiously optimistic. Well, don't celebrate too quickly. We'll see how it goes. By any metric, David Bowie had sampled more of life than anyone could ever hope to. Iman once said, I like to think there's nothing he hasn't seen. But there was one sizable item to cross off his bucket list. A musical. He dreamed of writing one since he was a teenager, aping Anthony Newley's stagey croon. He'd been not so subtly hinting at this ambition for years, and it influenced nearly everything he did, from his Ziggy Stardust alter ego to the -the over-the-top stage productions of the Glass Spider Tour. His 1995 album One Outside had been a sort of radio drama with songs and narration. Heck, the elaborately staged and choreographed Diamond Dogs tour had originally been intended as a Broadway-style version of George Orwell's 1984. David had danced around the idea of a musical for his entire career, and now he was ready to go for it. He called Robert Fox, a theater producer he'd known for decades, to try to figure out how to get the ball rolling. He told Fox that he wanted to write a musical based on Walter Tevis's book, The Man Who Fell to Earth. David had starred in director Nick Rogue's 1976 film adaptation, playing the role of the stranded alien known on Earth as Thomas Jerome Newton. Filmed in the midst of David's personal nadir in Los Angeles, the character had remained with him for months. Newton's loneliness and isolation informed the stark emotional soundscapes of Lowe and Heroes. David's songs fit Newton's voice perfectly. In a way, he never fully shook Thomas Jerome Newton. They were psychically bonded. Acting as producer, Fox hired Irish playwright Enda Walsh and avant-garde theater director Ivo Van Hove. Van Hove was a Bowie fanatic, but he had some scheduling issues. Bowie begged him to change his plans. We have to make it now. It has to happen. His urgency made Van Hove reconsider, and workshops went ahead as planned in New York. The play was called Lazarus, named for a new song David had written that was included in the production. It's sort of an enigmatic sequel to The Man Who Fell to Earth. The obtuse plot centers around the older Newton, holed up in his apartment, dulling the pain of his heartbreak with cheap gin. He calls himself a dying man who can't die. Then he meets another lost soul, a 13-year-old girl who revives his corroded spirit and gives him hope that he can return home. Ultimately, she sets him free. If the David Bowie Is exhibition allowed David to see his life from an audience's perspective, then Lazarus, with its existential themes and its use of his back catalog of songs, allowed David to see his soul on display. Autobiographical details pop up frequently. At one point, Newton imagines visiting occupied Berlin, One character in the show describes Newton as, quote, sort of sad, 
sort of unknowable in the way that you imagine reclusive, rich, eccentric men to be. They might as well be describing David. It's no coincidence that the little girl in the show is the same age that David's daughter Lexi was when he co-wrote it. Casting began in the fall of 2014. Robert Fox flew to New York for a preliminary meeting, expecting to see David. Instead, he found David's business manager waiting with an open laptop. David spoke to Fox through Skype and informed him of his condition. Because of his illness, he would have to miss some rehearsals, but his commitment to the project was total. He enjoyed the surreal experience of hearing other people sing his songs to him. He was especially taken with co-star Krista Miliotti's anguished version of Changes. When he first heard it, David turned to the producers and gasped, I'm so glad I wrote that song. They would describe his face during rehearsals as that of a delighted and amazed child, seeing something brought to life that was unexpected and joyful. With actor Michael C. Hall as the lead, the show went from the planning stages to opening its limited run at the New York Theater Workshop in just 12 months. Warp speed as far as musicals are concerned. When David dropped by rehearsals, he was heard to mutter on more than one occasion, I'd really like to see this. The producers understood the gravity of these words and acted accordingly. They got it done. Tickets to the entire run of Lazarus sold out within hours. David wasn't well enough to attend the previews, but he was there for opening night on December 7th, 2015. The show was part sci-fi drama, part rock spectacle, and part video art installation. Its dialogue was kept short, elliptical, opaque, and at times disorienting. The ending Bowie co-wrote is hopeful but typically open-ended. Newton and his muse sing a poignant version of Heroes, Bowie's celebration of the little triumphs that comprise daily survival. It's arranged as a delicate piano ballad. As it concludes, Newton lays on the floor. On the video screen behind him, his ghostly image blasts off on a rocket ship. It's unclear whether it's death or an escape from Earth, a place where he never truly felt at home. Perhaps it's both. David took the stage at Curtain Call, beaming in his t-shirt and blazer. At 68, a dearly held dream had come true. The press noted how great he looked. They hadn't caught on about his health. Almost no one knew a thing. But it was clear to the cast and crew that he was struggling. After his bows, he collapsed backstage. He was too sick to make it to the after party. But even in his weakened state, he told director Ivo Van Hove about plans to start a second musical. Van Hove was thrilled at the prospect, yet he couldn't shake the sense that he would never see David again. David then left the theater, running the gauntlet of fans and photographers one more time. David Bowie had just taken his final bow. It was his last public appearance. From then on, he would communicate with fans only through his music. That fall, he released the first track from his sessions with Donnie McCaslin's group. It was called Black Star. The multi-part suite is an uncategorizable blend of free jazz, atonal Gregorian chants, and house-influenced rhythms. At just under 10 minutes, it's his longest song since Station to Station. 
That track had been the definitive document of his descent into hell 40 years earlier. Black Star has more of an upward trajectory. It opens with an ominous drone. The sparse melody unspools as Bowie duets with himself, two liturgical voices intoning the words like a Byzantine mass or a spell. In the villa of our men burns a solitary candle, he sings, a fragile beacon of hope amid the darkness, or a humble memorial to a soul who is dead or dying. The overtones become even more unsettling with references to the day of execution. At the center of it all, he sings, at the center of it all. Lines that echo notorious Satanist Aleister Crowley, a frequent Bowie muse. Suddenly, it's unclear whether this is a sacred rite or an occult ritual. David had engaged in the supernatural extensively during his spiritual crisis in the mid-70s, when he was driven to the brink of standard consciousness by self-induced insanity. Now, on the threshold of life and death, the constructs of day-to-day humanity were again melting away, and he contemplated those same themes again. But then the music changes direction, elevating listeners above the clouds with a peace that can only be described as heavenly. A different Bowie is there to greet us, singing earnestly and plaintively. Something happened on the day he died. Spirit rose a meter and stepped aside. Somebody else took his place and bravely cried, I'm a black star. I'm a black star. He repeats the refrain again and again. I'm not a film star, he asserts. I'm not a pop star. I'm not a Marvel star. I'm not a flam star. I'm not a gangster. I'm a black star. In the months and years that followed, fans and critics would debate the meaning of David's personal rosebud. Most obviously, it follows his lifelong fascination with space and extraterrestrial phenomena. In theoretical physics, a black star is a more recent tangent of a black hole. It's a collapsing star that's close to reaching singularity, and space-time ceases to exist within it. The star has died, yet it still releases its energy indefinitely. In short, it's interstellar immortality. Of course, the title would inspire a host of other interpretations. Most intriguing is a connection to Elvis Presley. The two had a strange kind of synchronicity. They'd shared a birthday, a longtime record label, and musical infamy. In 1960, Presley had recorded a song called Black Star, which featured the lyrics, Every man has a black star, a black star over his shoulder. And when a man sees his black star, he knows his time has come. The track would go unreleased until the 90s. It's certainly possible that David was inspired by his fellow Capricorn. He was a fan, after all and apparently wrote his song Golden Years as an offering to the king. But it seems unlikely that Bowie wrote Black Star as a response to an extremely obscure Presley cut. There's also a persistent belief that the song title was an oblique reference to his illness. A black star is indeed a radiologic term for a type of cancer lesion, but for breast cancer, not the type David battled. Other Black Star theories push the bounds of believability to their breaking point. It's named after a secret government space plane program, 
or David's friend Most Def's hip-hop group, or a Greek anarchist terrorist organization, or even an episode of the British drama Peaky Blinders, a show David was known to love. The last theory is pretty laughable, but the song did actually have its genesis in a TV program. Filmmaker Johan Rennick was directing a six-part crime series called The Last Panthers and approached Bowie to do a theme tune. It was a total long shot, but to his surprise, David said yes. The result was an early version of Black Star, which was reworked for David's album. When it came time to make a video for the song, it seemed only right that David asked Rennick. The pair worked together, with the director going off a series of David's sketches and rough storyboards. David appears in much of the short film as a figure they nicknamed Button Eyes due to his white blindfold, like a man, as he sings, on the day of execution, awaiting death. The video opens with a solar eclipse and an astronaut lying dead on a desolate landscape. His helmet opens to reveal a jewel-encrusted skull. Later, a skeleton belonging to the doomed spaceman floats into the ether. Though Bowie never said definitively, the identity of the astronaut was clear to Rennick. It was Major Tom, back for one final appearance. Unlike his other creations, David retained a special fondness for him. Since his debut in 1969, Major Tom became David's only true recurring character, cropping up in not only Space Oddity, but 1980's Ashes to Ashes and a remix of Hello Space Boy in 1996. More than just his first introduction to the public, he'd become a sort of totem for David. The persona had taken him higher and further than he'd ever dreamed. For all of his fascination with space, David would tellingly admit that the notion of spaceflight terrified him. I wouldn't dream of getting on a spaceship, he once said. It'd scare the hell out of me. Major Tom helped give him courage to go where he didn't dare as an ordinary man. In Black Star, Major Tom has finally come home, but by symbolically killing him off, David was killing a part of himself. The album Black Star was slated for release in October of 2015, but production delays on the music videos meant that the record hit shelves on January 8th, David's 69th birthday. Two days later, the psychic would be proven right, and Black Star would be consecrated as David Bowie's last record. It's a distinction that would forever color and possibly distort the songs it contained. Black Star has earned a reputation as David's knowing goodbye to his fans, a parting gift, in Tony Visconti's words. It isn't hard to see why. There are too many clues to make it a mere coincidence. Even the cover has a distinctly funereal air. It bore a simple black star with astral fragments that, with a little imagination, spell out Bowie. If you weren't looking, you wouldn't even know he was there. Born out of discussions about black holes, the Big Bang, and the end of the universe, Jonathan Barnbrook's design evoked mortality. The vinyl edition had the star cut out of the sleeve, leaving the record exposed allowing it to degrade over time. Another comment on life's tendency to damage and wound. A morbid streak certainly ran through most of the songs, including the title track. A re-recorded version of Sue contains lines such as, 
The clinic call, the x-rays fine, and references to tombstones and graves. On dollar days, he considers his successes and his failures, weighing them both as he contemplates the afterlife, which appears as the English evergreens of his homeland. Ultimately, these are poetic liberties taken with his lyrics, words that David never lived to explain, and probably wouldn't even if he had. But there is little need for interpretation on Lazarus, the last single David released in his lifetime. The facts are potent on their own. It takes its name from Lazarus of Bethany, a biblical figure that Jesus resurrects four days after his burial. This sickness will not end in death, Christ tells his followers. David wrote the song shortly after his cancer diagnosis. It's difficult to read the message as anything other than a dying man yearning for immortality. Just one more rebirth. The opening lines are arresting. Look up here, I'm in heaven, David sings, as if speaking from beyond the grave. I've got scars that can't be seen. He punctuates the lines with furious slashes on a Stratocaster, given to him by his old friend and rival, Mark Bolin. He received it the last time they met, just weeks before his fatal car crash at age 29. The instrument had become something of a talisman for his fallen musical brother, and perhaps a monument to David's own endurance and survival. I've got drama, can't be stolen, he continues. Everybody knows me now. His work, never lacking in theatricality, will live on, and no one can take that away. This way or no way, you know I'll be free. Just like that bluebird, I'll be free, he concludes. The image evokes a poem by Charles Bukowski, a favorite of Bowie's, who described his inner life, his private self, as his bluebird, one that he struggles to protect from the gaze of the unforgiving modern world. The long fade ends with a sax howl, sounding uncannily like a human voice, expressing wordless sounds of raw grief. The music video brims with macabre images. It opens with David writhing in a hospital bed. Some of the pain was undoubtedly real. To give the appearance of levitation, the bed was suspended from the ceiling. The disorienting angle makes his feverish malaise palpable. The scene is made all the more distressing by the metal button eyes on the blindfold that he claws in agony. Ancient Greeks would place coins on the eyes of dead bodies as payment for Charon, the ferryman, to carry the soul of the deceased across the river Styx to the underworld. The symbolism, though perhaps unintentional, is eerie. David works madly, wearing an outfit he wore 40 years earlier as the thin white duke. He looks fearful and frightened as he hurriedly scribbles, trying to finish his work before running out of time. Then he stalks off to a large wardrobe, climbs inside, and slams the door like the lid of a coffin. Then he's gone. It's tempting to interpret all this as a meticulously stage-managed goodbye, a dramatic exit befitting the greatest thespian rock and roll has ever known. It's comforting to think that David Bowie knew something about the universe that the rest of us do not, and was able to plot the precise manner of his final bow. 
but that wouldn't be entirely accurate. Besides, do you really want to remember him as a man cowed by fate, who willingly submitted to the inevitable and went down without a fight? Not a chance. As Blackstar was readied for release that winter, he was eagerly talking to Donnie McCaslin about playing a series of intimate dates at some New York jazz clubs. And he was still plugging away at that second musical. I can't stop it, he emailed a friend. It's coming full force, and I'm just creating and creating and creating. In the last week of his life, he FaceTimed Tony Visconti to tell him he'd recorded demos for five new songs and wanted to get moving on a sequel to Black Star immediately. Visconti was thrilled. But then that was the last he heard from him. The tone of David's communications started to change. Old friends and partners began receiving emails that one described as slushy. In his final days, he sent a message to Brian Eno. Thank you for our good times, Brian, he concluded. They will never rot. He signed the message, Dawn, just to keep it from getting too serious. This was classic David. He ended an email to Bromley schoolmate Jeff McCormick with, Thank you for being my friend all these years, and I miss you lots. Now F off. Amusingly, the last Twitter account that David followed billed itself as belonging to God. Coincidence, maybe. Or David Bowie was an expert-level troll. David loved to play with expectations. He did it with everything. His music, his performances, his style. And we loved him for it. In the end, he used his own existence to play with us one more time. All in good fun. And it was all so fun, wasn't it? The final images of David released to the public show him dapper as ever in a perfectly tailored suit and fedora, grinning from ear to ear, laughing in the face of death. May we all be so fortunate. Our expectations of an ending, learned from repeated story-film-narrative culture, gives us a completely unjustified set of expectations for life. David once said. And he's right. Humans compulsively look for the story arc in ourselves and others. It helps us find meaning and make order. And that's not reality. In this case, take David's music. He'd been grappling with his mortality on albums for years. Any one of those could be held up as a fitting farewell. The zen acceptance of heathen, or the masterful comeback of the next day with the nostalgic where are we now. Black Star is simply where the transmission stopped. The interpretation is on us. David would often say, what people see in my songs is far more interesting than what I actually put into them. The brilliance is in the ambiguity. Following the release of The Next Day in 2013, David gently chastised cover designer Jonathan Barnbrook for describing his meaning behind the sleeve art. David didn't approve. When you do that, you devalue the end object, he insisted, and you leave it less open for people to understand. Make them wonder. Black Star is the same sort of cat and mouse game that he lived for. The closest he comes to tipping his hand is on the final track, I Can't Give Everything Away. As the last song on Bowie's last record, it's a fitting epitaph. Viewed one way, it's a plea for privacy after 50 years of giving himself over to the public, an explanation for keeping his illness under wraps. 
there are some things he simply must keep to himself. From another perspective, it's a stubborn refusal to abandon his earthly life, his hard-won happiness, and all that he'd earned. He loved life. He loved his work. It's hard to give it up and give everything away. And finally, it's a playful tease. I can't tell you everything. That would give the game away. Put the clues together. And the song features a big one. The harmonica riff is taken from the low track A New Career in a New Town, a song that heralded his move to Berlin 40 years earlier. It's a piece about moving on, starting fresh, rebirth. For Bowie the Buddhist, death is the ultimate rebirth. As far as clues go, it's a good one. But he can't give everything away. So who was this man? This collection of characters, masks, and poses that we've explored over these episodes. Sorry to disappoint, but I don't know any more than you do. And that's sort of the fun of it. A curator for the David Bowie Is exhibition admitted that, after the multi-year project was complete, he still was no closer to figuring out who David Bowie actually was. And I second that sentiment. We want David Bowie to be superhuman, in touch with the cosmos and a master of space and time. It makes a better story. But it is just a story, one that he told so skillfully. But in a way, it obscures an even more amazing point. The fact that he was just a person like you and me actually makes it even more exciting. That means there's hope for us to be great, too. No excuses. And yet, he wasn't really like us, was he? The psychic's prediction, the musical hints, the exquisitely timed exit. It's enough to make you think. Was he ordained with otherworldly insights or guidance? Was he an alien mystic sent down to Earth to shake things up? I don't know myself. But I can tell you a story. It was November of 2015. David was filming the Lazarus music video. He knew something that the rest of the cast and crew didn't. A day earlier, he'd been told that his cancer had spread. There was no chance of recovery. The decision was made to stop treatment. It was over. David kept the news to himself, but he still showed up to work. The director suggested that he end the video by disappearing into the large wardrobe and slamming the door. David thought about it for a second before a big smile lit up his face. Ten. Nine. When the end came and everything was stripped away, Eight. he remained an artist. Seven. And what's an artist but an alien mystic? Six. The wardrobe looked unmistakably like a coffin. Five. It was perfect. Four. Yeah, David said. Three. That'll keep them guessing. Two. One. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. 
The executive producers are Noel Brown and Sean Titone. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The show was researched, written, and hosted by me, Jordan Runtog, and edited, scored, and sound designed by Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil, with additional music by Evan Tyre. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.